This is a Culture Inject production. This week we're reviewing and analyzing the first episode of The Nevers. Fair warning, there will be spoilers. I'm Chirag, and joining me today is... Hello, I'm Sean. Uh, I'm Laura, and uh, this is The Nevers Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the discussion and dissection of every episode of the HBO series The Nevers, an original sci-fi drama from Joss Whedon. If you'd like to follow us online, visit our website at hbothenevers.com, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube at hbothenevers, or at The Never Podcast. Stream The Nevers Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, YouTube, and anywhere else that you can stream podcasts. Uh, any ideas, interview requests, comments, or questions can be sent to theneverspodcast at gmail.com. You can please also rate and review our podcast as it helps us move up the charts and get seen by more eyeballs. Okay, now uh, for some very professional housekeeping, I'll go ahead and read the synopsis for you guys. This is the first episode called Touched. It airs April 11th, 2021. So three years after an inexplicable event suddenly equips them with extraordinary abilities, Amalia True, Penance Adair, work to protect their kind from widespread deepening antipathy. Meanwhile, police inspector Frank Mundy played by Ben Chaplin, investigates a string of murders at the hands of a reportedly touched and highly dangerous serial killer named Malady. And uh, I'll start us off with the cast and crew. So we've got Olivia Williams as Lavinia Bidlow, Laura Donnelly as Amelia True, Eleanor Tomlinson as Mary Brighton, James Norton as Hugo Swan, and Nick Frost as the Beggar King. Also, we have Elizabeth Berrington as Lucy Best, Ben Chaplin as Frank Mundy, Amy Manson as Malady, Pip Torrens as Lord Masson, Dennis O'Hare as Dr. Edmund Haig, and Anna Devlin as Primrose Chataway. And we have the amazing Tom Riley as Augustus Bidlow. We have Rochelle Neal as Annie Carby. We have Kiran Sonia Sawar as Harriet Kaur. Anne Skelly as Penance Adair. Viola Predijon as Myrtle Haplish, and Zachary Momo as Dr. Horatio Cousins, written and directed by Joss Whedon. Okay. Initial impressions, you guys? I really liked the show, first of all. I was kind of um, worried that I was going to really be excited for it, and then it was not going to be as good as I thought that it was. Um, I really liked the relationship between um, Penance and, and Amelia. They're just like this awesome little duo, just the whole episode as a whole hit really hard in all the right places. And I wasn't sure with the ending to start with because I was kind of like, oh, this is strange to be given everything, like told everything almost at the start. And then I watched it again and I was actually like, oh no, I do like this. <laughs> um, it's interesting, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with you. The, the fact that they gave us some kind of closure, it felt like... Like I I don't know I haven't seen the second third or fourth episode yet we were HBO shared with us the first four I've only seen the first one to preserve my integrity as an audience member 
but it felt kind of like a very like a like a wholesome meal on its own this first episode like i felt satisfied if i had never watched any of the other nevers the first one on its own was was very filling for my stomach um anyways Sh- uh, sean you have any initial impressions yeah well um as a, a joss whedon fan I, I i loved it um absolutely loved it and um it, it was quite unpredictable as an episode which there, that doesn't happen a lot and it, it was nice it was quite refreshing and i mean, I mean my, my favorite part was the opera the bit the bit at the opera it was yeah i mean melody's entrance oh yeah that that was incredible and just just some of the uniqueness of you know some of the touched powers it was very different to what you would typically see in any other kind of program um and there's been there's been a lot you know different programs that have had people with special abilities but there was just a slight i don't know difference um with with these especially i can't think of anything off the top of my head that i really didn't enjoy you know um yeah i mean this this episode is really a 10 out of 10 for me mm. and i don't say that lightly i mean coming off shows like i guess wandavision and uh i guess uh the mandalorian this this episode as a pilot episode feels like it got off to a really strong start like even when you go back to the pilot of game of thrones it's almost like i I mean if you take this show in a vacuum i think it comes out much stronger than the other ones and this episode in particular is so juicy it's it's like a, it's like a piece of gum. It just gives and gives and gives, and you know, and I, I feel like my jaws are gonna get tired from masticating. But here we go. Yeah, no, we said that as well. I said that it was a very strong first episode because a lot of shows are like, oh, you know, the first one's a bit slow. It takes some getting into. But oh, I feel yeah, like yeah. this show's really you can jump straight in and it's entertaining. Um, I feel like the pacing is really good as well. There's no, it gives you just the right level of excitement and intrigue. Uh, it explains everything in a way that it's not too vague, but also not too in-depth that you're getting bored. Oh, yeah. But, um, but I think that'll go into the overall structure. So if we go on to talk about the story and writing, yeah, I mean, my initial thoughts on the story is that kind of thing. I think a lot of people are, is it just, you know, Victorians with superpowers and is it going to be like that flat? But no, I don't think it is. It's, you know, it is Victorian London which is already just very cool. And then you superpowers, but you're not sure where they're from. And then obviously at the end of the episode, it's, is it aliens? That's, you know, <laughs> that's what we're thinking now. But um, so there's so many places that it can go from here. You do mention superpowers. And I wanted to just say this straight off the bat. Uh, so I feel like there's very strong X-Men parallels. And I know, I, I mean, just about anybody can mention that, but it, I mean, there's no way that this show was not pitched as Victorian X-Men. That's definitely what was pitched in the executives' whatever room that they sit in. Well, but, just well, I was just going to say that Joss Whedon has written X-Men. Yes. And he wrote the Uncanny, was it the Uncanny As- X-Men? Astonishing, no, Astonishing. Astonishing, Astonishing X-Men. X-Men. Very, very good. I have good, it, yeah. yes. I love <laughs> it. It's very good. Yeah. I miss Kitty Pride. Kitty Pride is the yeah the films don't do Kitty Pride any justice. When I tell people she's my favorite character, they're like, oh. "What?" <laughs> so so just talking about the X Men the X Men parallel. So we got Lavinia Bidlow is her name, right? 
So she sits in a wheelchair. She runs an orphanage for the touched. She's the <laughs> she's the she's the proxy for Charles Xavier, right? And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have Malady, who is the Magneto. I would I would assume. I mean, phonetically, her name is similar to Magneto. You got the same first consonant. You got the same syllable pattern. Mal means bad. That's it. Feels to me like a throwback to Firefly, but maybe I'm just painting <laughs> painting where there's no canvas i don't know uh I, I do feel like the fact that her name is malady and and I, it feels so on the nose for a villain name and the the connection i'm making to magneto i feel like she's gonna have some kind of a redemptive turn coming up there's more to her than we've seen in the first episode so far that's for sure and then uh you got the fact that the x-men the X-Men were an allegory for civil rights, right? Like Charles Xavier represented Dr. King. Magneto represented more of the Malcolm X approach. And the mutant gene was the basis of discrimination and fear. So I feel like the touched serves a similar purpose. But one distinction that I would make is the mutants and the touched are... It, it, it feels like the mutants are kind of indiscriminately powerful. Just kind of like a like a genetic lottery with them. Whereas the touched, it there's kind of more of a will at play. There's there's more of a conscious, like discriminatory power that's giving people power. You know, like all the traditional disenfranchised, disempowered people, for example, uh, women, people of color, all that kind of stuff. Those people are the those disempowered people are literally empowered with abilities. So I feel like there's there's a different shade to the Nevers, more of like a spirituality, maybe a god involvement. I know you mentioned aliens, Laura, but uh, I mean th- <laughs> that may be the case. Maybe I'm reading too overtly theologically into it, but it feels to me like a like a more of like a spiritual a spiritual god kind of. And I think the doctor at the end even mentions touched or poked by God. So the impression mm-hmm. the impression that I got. The the event, the touched event, the act of God seems to me like a catalyst for change. And change is like a big theme, like a harbinger for what the future can become for humanity, what it means, what it needs to become for humanity, you know? Like like David Bowie says, ch-ch-ch-ch-changes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think definitely different. Yeah, I said earlier that they... Um... They all seem to have powers that are toward their personality or their strengths already. Yeah. Uh, you see in the uh, in the opening and the ending, that's the same scene of the three years ago. Okay. You see little bits of their lives and that, you know, the singer going to audition for the show, she gets the voice and then, yeah, and obviously the God-Alien parallel, I don't know. I don't know, because it's one of those things, it's back in a time where nothing out of this world had been seen before. But um, I definitely think, yeah, there's definitely more to Malady, like you said. But I found the show very easy to understand. There was a very long scene, well, it wasn't long, but it was very dialogue heavy with all of the the men in the boardroom. And um, with the the time turners, the uh, hourglasses, and they seemed like this really important, and we were discussing what they... I don't know whether this was something that was used in meetings in real life, whether it's like a, this is how long you get to speak or a, but they seem to focus really heavily on it. And yeah. I'm just, yeah. So that, that, that 
caught my intrigue. I actually have a point to make on that scene. I I fell in love, madly in love with that scene. So first of all, if we're talking about the, the parliament dudes discussing the touched, right? I liked the little dialogue bit where, and now we're talking about the story and the dialogue, where Lord Messine is his name, I think, played by Pip Torrens, Lord Messine. So, so he he kind of relates the touched, the event of the touched as a, as a direct attack on the empire, and one one of his fellow peer parliament dudes asks him, "So this attack is ex- is expected to come?" And Lord Messine replies, "It came three years ago." And then they read off the date that this event happened. This kind of notorious paradigm shift. Uh, like in, in like a historic moment, the third of August, eighteen ninety six, and Lord Messine responds, "A Monday, a bit gray." I loved that when he said "A Monday," I loved that. Like <laughs> I loved how he kind of just undermines the specialness of that day. He just kind of dismisses it, and that tells us so much about his character. I love that so much. And uh, he just kind of recontextualizes this entire uh, phenomenon as an attack. And, uh, you know, just that scene was so meaty. It was so wonderful. And uh, I know I'm talking a little bit too long, but (laughs) you talked about the hourglasses being flipped. That, for me, like when the dialogue was the dialogue crescendos in intensity, we see the men on the table flipping those hourglasses with very noticeable, accentuated, like a thud each time. And it felt kind of rhythmic for me. Like, like those the turning of the hourglasses, it, it struck me as something symbolic. Like, because they, they even mention in the dialogue that the society is coming into a new age, a time of change and revolution and magnificent power. And it feels to me like these men are desperately resisting that and desperately trying to control it. By flipping these hourglasses, they're trying to control the sands in the hourglass, like archaism, kind of like a Make America Great Again kind of thing, where they're preserving their old ways. Because with time comes change, and these men are fighting change by controlling time. In that scene, at least, it felt like to me. No, I agree because yeah. they are very heavily <laughs> not um, not enjoying any form of change. Obviously, women having all these powers, but um, not just women though. But it's more like you said, all these people that um, have been downtrodden are now being given the power, and obviously the people at the top don't like that. But yeah, also with um, I don't know, we'll probably discuss it more heavily in later parts. But um, with Lord Masson. Like you say, it's just, oh, it was just a Monday. But then obviously at the end you see what happened to him on that day and to someone who we can assume is a family member, a daughter or a granddaughter, I'm not sure. But for him, maybe that day, you know, is more important to him for other reasons. And uh, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll learn more about that in the future, I'm sure. <laughs> I want to get Sean in there. You have anything to say about that scene? Anything to say about the story or dialogue or scripts? No, actually, I think everything that I would have said was all covered. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Yeah. We can move on to talking about the performances, the actors, the characters. What did you guys think about that? Sean, what was your standout? Well, I I loved Melody. And the the performance, 
that Amy Manson played, like that it was just so incredible. And again, it's it's that whole unpredictable nature that I love about everything, and that her, her unpredictable nature are. And um, it was just so there was highs and lows everywhere, and uh, you, you didn't know what to expect, especially in her her entrance. Um, I mean, the poor, the poor supporting artists in the in the background, they looked absolutely shocked. I think I think that intenseness came across in the opera thing, um, and it definitely comes across over the screen. Um, she's definitely by far my favourite character at the moment. Um, I like the inventiveness of Penance, isn't it? Penance Adair, um, played by Anne Skelly, and I like how they've they've kind of introduced all of these really great inventions that are quite futuristic in the Victorian era, like the car, and and it's like a three-wheeled car. It's yeah, it's they're definitely my two favourite characters at the moment. Uh, I haven't quite, funnily enough, though, warmed to Amelia. See, I'm different. I really like Amelia. I think she's, well, she's badass, first of all, right? So <laughs> she can slap, <laughs> you know, a seven-foot dude who's attacking her like it's nothing. She um, is fantastic and she's strong and she knows what she's doing and her purpose, well, seemingly knows, you know, this is her purpose and this is what she's fighting for and... Uh, her relationship with Penance is fantastic. I love them as a duo. I think they are just, they're great. It's so funny. And uh, yeah, they're definitely probably the highlight of the show for me. But um, I was actually one of the extras on the back of the stage in the opera scene. And I can tell you for a fact that, yeah, Amy um, Manson, wow, she was that performance she gives is fantastic in the show. It came across so great. But being there on the day, and it didn't matter how many times we did it, she was just on point. She was fantastic. And it was scary as hell. <laughs> oh, for real? Was... So you were an extra in that scene? Yeah, yeah. I was one of the like opera people in the background. And it was it was such a great week. If, if I can ask you a question about that that experience, how many times did, did she run through that scene? Because it's kind of like a soliloquy. Yeah, I'm trying to see. So we did that. It took four days to shoot that bit. Um, well, that whole scene so we did there was a bit that wasn't really even used obviously a lot ends up on the cutting room floor but um you know that was probably a good like few hours of that on and off you know wow don't know how many times exactly but every single time she did it it was that powerful yeah she hit it out of the park i gotta i gotta mirror what sean was saying when it comes to malady and penance first of all malady she really for me embodies that broken poetry like and in that scene that we're talking about, she she gets to literally perform on a stage and tell the world all of her crazy feelings. Like it reminds me of it reminds me of Avengers two, where we are first introduced to Ultron and he monologues on that stage and he tells every the Avengers why they suck and all that type of stuff. It reminds me of that, and she's incredible. I I think her and then. Penance Adair, I think, is played by Anne Skelly. That actress is a revelation as far as I'm concerned. Because, uh, I mean, I guess she represents the, the burgeoning of women in STEM, uh, that kind of thing. But I, I think the actress who plays her, everything she says is so truthful and just achingly sincere and honest. And 
like all all of her dialogues are written in the scriptures. There's not one false word that she says. I just I I fell in love with her character. I it, her character is inspiring. Uh, she's the most Luke Skywalkery of them all. I feel like, or <laughs> if you want to kind of like give a like a Buffy comparison, she's she's the Willow, I guess. You know, to to Amalia's Buffy, if you wanna if you wanna put it in that context. Yeah, Willow and Buffy. Yeah, yeah. just a, and I they they will become an iconic duo, I'm sure, as famous as as Willow and Buffy have become. <laughs> yeah, I'm also really liking Inspector Mundy. I love the whole um, angle of truth thing. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought, yeah, that kind of comedy is is where I'm at. Just those little quips that you know you could totally not even notice, but when you pick up on them. They're just hilarious. And the actors, you know, pulling all that stuff off, especially between um, uh, Amelia and Penance, because a lot of their action and their dialogue is very, very quick. There's a lot of it. There's a lot going on at all times. And it doesn't feel like it to us, which means they're doing a fantastic job. Yeah. I loved his humorless laugh after he says, I'm the angle of death. That was wonderful. <laughs> he's he's really intimidating in that scene and also very righteous, which is interesting yeah. considering, you know, later on, we know that he's indebted to our man, Hugo Swan, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like, what's going on there? The good intention is, um, well, you think that he's an honest cop, which is probably hard to find in any kind of time in history. But, you know, he's out for the the victim. He's not interested in any of this, um, whatever's going on. You know, he wants to find out what's happened to this this um, person. Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, obviously later on we learn that, yeah, he's in debt in some way and uh, we will find out what for. Speaking of relationships between characters, segueing into what what relationships kind of stood out to you guys the most? One that probably stood out more quietly is Horatio's and Amelia's because instantly you're kind of like, okay, they have a connection, right? There's definitely, not necessarily a love interest, but they are definitely very close um, and I'm very interested to see kind of, you know, more of that relationship. Yeah, he says, I think he he says when they're getting ready for the opera or, or Amalia is, he mentions that that dress is a good one for her. Yeah. And I think the audience is meant to take that as a kind of a romantic suggestion. I don't know, at least I did. But, <laughs> of course, he, he immediately undermines that, that romanticism with his next remark. He says, it'll keep pressure off the wound, which is a very doctor yeah. thing to say. <laughs> so there's a little bit of ambiguity over there. But I think it's a bit strange. I Because I, 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 I saw in the opening monologue we see that the doctor has a wife and a child. So yes. I'm wondering what, because we don't see them after three years hence, so what might have happened to them if they are setting up a love interest? I'm not sure about that. Yeah, that talking. was my question. I was thinking, what's, I said to Sean, what's, what's happened to his family? Is there something going on here? Time will tell, I'm sure. Yeah. I know we already talked about Amalian and Penance, but did you guys have any other thoughts on that? Because I, I certainly do. I feel like that's the heart of it. Of the show? Yeah, of the show. Amalia and Penance are kind of the one and two punch, like you said, the duo, dynamic duo. Yeah, I think it's a show with a lot of characters thrown at you all at once, which is good because um, I think it's nice to just, you know, 
like I said, the show doesn't over elaborate on any particular thing. It kind of gives everything to you at once, but it's uh, not overwhelming. So it's done really well. We meet a whole lot of characters, but yeah, they are definitely for me the um, the heart of the show. I think you see how much they both care, obviously, for everyone at the orphanage and just life in general and how they want everyone of the afflicted to be, um, you know, accepted into the world. Yeah, I just love them. I think they're so natural together in terms of acting. Absolutely. They are they just really, really fire off one in They really gel, another. yeah. I don't know if you guys noticed this and I, I don't know if the audience noticed this, but I, I, I noticed kind of like a like a refrain, a a recurring uh a piece of dialogue between Amalia and Penance. Um the first the very first piece of dialogue in the entire show. Penance says to Amalia, she says, Mrs. True, you look very fine. And I I noticed that's that's been kind of like a repeating motif. Because the first time we, we see them interact, Penance says to Amalia, Mrs. True, you look very fine. And she responds, I think so too. And then before the opera, we see Penance say that again, Mrs. True, you look very fine. And Amalia responds, I think so too. And then in the very end, when Penance is, she kind of discovers Amalia beaten and bloodied and having lost the fight. And she says it again one more time. She says, Mrs. True, you look very fine. This time a little kind of uh, a bit a bit stuttering on herself. But this time, Amalia doesn't say, she doesn't respond with, I think so too. And I think that's the moment where the show really tells us the truth about what Amalia, she, what she really thinks of herself. Uh, like it shows us, it shows us that she doesn't think that, she doesn't agree necessarily. And it also, I think, shows us that regardless of what Amalia thinks of herself, Penance will say, Mrs. True, I think you look very fine. So to me, I sensed a bit of almost unconditional love between the two characters. It's it's very palpable and it's very endearing to, to the two of them. It felt it felt very beautiful to me, almost poetic. Uh, the fact that it had a one, two, three, act, act one, act two, act three payoff to that line of dialogue. I really enjoyed that part. She's also um, almost like Amelia's conscience, when they're talking about going and, uh, you know, I might have to hit someone or, you know, he had a shotgun. That, 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 just that little bit is great. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, okay. <laughs> but, um, yeah, she just very much doesn't want violence and that, but obviously that's, um, how Amelia's got to take hold of the situation sometimes, you know, because she's got to look after her, her people. Oh, the bit in the carriage where the beggar king has got the knife to her face and se- she says, it's all right. It it's not my face. That line's got me so many questions. What does she mean? <laughs> I loved that line. Sean, you got any thoughts? Well, I definitely do want to see the relationship between Amelia and Penance more. Um, I think because I haven't quite warmed yet to Amelia, I'm I'm still kind of a bit unsure on it. But I definitely think yeah, um, there is as you both said, uh, the unconditional love, uh, that is very transparent. And it just comes across, and, and I think it's, it's 
it's not even a case that Amelia need, Amelia needs the the support from Penance, but it's the fact that she's always there to give that support. Yeah, and, and yeah, I think that will in, um, show their kind of dynamic duo type. And then, as far as the the scene in the carriage with the beggar king is concerned, I think even going a little back, uh, Amalia's flippant attitude towards the beggar king is so interesting to me because the beggar king is feared by everyone else, almost yes. almost in like a reaver esque way. He's he's kind of like notorious. I I mean, I guess the better firefly corollary would be badger. He's like a scary. He's like a scary badger, but it's also Nick yeah. Frost, so I can't help but love him. Uh, but it's so strange to yeah. see him in this role. It is it, it's, because you're used yeah. to seeing him, you know, play mostly comedy, and he's you know the friendly nice guy, and now he's and it's great to see. It's really great to see I him get love, to play at this. Love Nick Frost, but I I gotta say Amalia's lack of fear. It feels kind of like an extension of and trigger warning it feels like an extension of her suicide attempt where she's kind of reached a level of fuck all it, it's like she she kind of, when she leans her face into the blade it mm. reminds me of the buffy scene where buffy bears her neck to angel there's like a there's a there's a fearlessness of death there that can only come from having been intimate with death like for yeah. buffy her intimacy with death was quite literal with the angel relationship. For Amalia, it's explicit too, like with, from her widowhood. And when she says, this isn't my face, that to me is so clear that there's a deeper anguish hidden behind the smile and the normalcy of her face. Like there's that that's kind of a facade. There's something behind that. There's 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 a There's a truth to her that I think is only revealed to us in the very end when we when a penance discovers her after her defeat anyways that was my take on that that kind of scene i love that scene and, and on on the same kind of uh senses as melody's kind of entrance there's there's that intensiveness from the performance actually given by her um i think that it comes across because she is standing up to yeah this this you know feared figure and and again like like you both nick frost i mean i i love his work and he's always surprising me with the roles that he's playing again that whole kind of scene in itself it's just it's just so intense so perfectly and well executed it's, it's almost yeah it's almost like you know uh, the same sort of craziness as malady but more controlled in a yeah, more of a controlled manner you know I think that's similar to like uh, the X Men parody that that you were talking about earlier because I feel like both Magneto and Xavier want the same thing, right? They want a world where humans and mutants live together, but they both have such separate, you know, one's radicalized and you know just this is the only way we're going to get, it. and the other one's trying really hard to just meld with the world and you know do it the way. The humans want it essentially, you know, to be as quiet and nice as possible. But um, I think with Malady, it's hard, isn't it? Because we don't know what's going on in her head because she's from the end scene. We see that she's the only person that remembers what happened. And everyone's obviously just said, You're crazy. But she, you know, she knows the real truth 
or at least what she saw. And that must be really hard, you know, to not have anybody else see or believe what happened. Totally. Yeah, and I have, I have an essay to say about that. But before we get there, <laughs> I, was gonna say, I want to talk... Can... Yeah, we can talk about that for three days. But yeah. <laughs> before we get there, I, I, I want to talk about uh, Augustus Bidlow and Lavinia Bidlow's relationship. So I noticed a little piece of dialogue, like a little whedonism that I, that I loved in the conversation between Hugo Swan and Augustus Bidlow uh, when they're in that bedroom or the living room or wherever that place was, maybe the foyer. <laughs> so he, he kind of impassionately defends her after Hugo Swan says she's being weird. And then Hugo Swan, the pansexual guy, kind of responds, I'm an ape. But she does push you around. The poetry of that line hit me immediately. Because in the opening montage, we see Augustus physically pushing Lavinia around in her wheelchair. (laughs) But in their relationship, it seems she's the one who pushes him around. Yeah. So just kind of like the the reversal, the poetry of that. I don't I I I those are the little those I mean salvage what you want from Whedon's writing style. Those are the things that I absolutely love, the little gems of of character of, of character moments. It tells us so much about not only Augustus and Lavinia's relationship, but also Hugo and Augustus's relationship because he kind of has that you know driving a wedge between people dividing dividing and conquering he seems like a bit of a you know you take him you underestimate him to begin with he could be a very dangerous man I feel like going forward but we'll see we'll see about that well I think Hugo and Augustus have this relationship as well as like a duo because you know I feel like obviously they must have grown up together and gone to school together and whatever but they're so like two different sides of the coin and whether that's because Augustus has been you know obviously suppressed by his family and his sister like say he's controlled and he's pushed around whereas Hugo's obviously been he's had this life where he's been able to do whatever he wants basically and it's fun to see how the two of them can still remain very very good friends even though they're completely in different worlds almost. I think that going on from that it's like where they are from the different worlds. I'm, I'm sure when they're always together, you can kind of see that kind of like not bad effect on you know you know when you you get together and you have that kind of like uh, one of your friends has a bad effect on you like influence uh, yeah a bad influence that that definitely comes across. So I I feel like uh, there's going to be a lot of future things that may play out where that that kind of happens. I just feel like where he's a pushover, he may, with Hugo, kind of have that cheekiness and push back a little bit, you know? Okay, so any other relationships you guys found significant? Well, there's, there's the relationship between Melody and the gang members, but at the moment there's not much that we can say about that, I don't. Well, we do know that there must be something to Melody for, in order for anybody to follow her, because I don't think... I mean... Nobody's just gonna follow like a like a crazy person. There there must be some <laughs> rhythm and rhyme to what she's going for, some motive she has, which we have yet to see. Have you guys seen any of the uh, the other episodes yet? 
Uh, we did watch them. Oh yes, the four. Oh, you watched <laughs> all four of them. Okay, so so maybe I'm in the blind spot. Okay. So, but we're we we haven't we're just kind of like trying to ignore those at the minute and discuss yeah. to discuss okay. this. So segueing to the to the powers of the characters, which which powers stood out to you guys in this episode? Uh, for me, I like Bonfire's flame because it looks dissimilar to any flame power I've seen in any other film or TV. It's very... She's really controlled and it's like elegant but strong and because fire's usually all over the place and and yeah, I like the effects on it. It looks really great. For me, it's um, Pence's ability to see electricity. I, I just love that that idea and, and the fact that she can see energy and it, it almost... It reminds me of... Heroes, uh, with, with Micah. It's done in such a, again, an, a unique way and it's so different. And, and it's just, yeah, the, the, it, the fact that, as we said before, with how their abilities seem to kind of, um, go off of their personalities. And we see that her creativeness was there before she got the ability. It's just nice to see it that it's developed and she's actually now taken control of her skills and using her ability to assist in that. It's very much the the abilities are just enhancements of what these people are already what skills these people already have. She must have uh, she she already had a kind of adeptness with technology and inventiveness and that type of thing and I just love how her characters kind of looking looking up at the horizon i mean we see we see that in the beginning shot she's kind of looking at the horizon and she's inventive and creative and building new things and she she's really the standout for me but in my opinion the character i think her name is mary brighton right the one the one who's who has the ability to to sing in that kind of way in that scene when she sang at the opera i think that First of all, that was a beautiful scene, and I may or may not have rolled a couple of tears in that scene, because, <laughs> oh my god, first of all. Second of all, I feel like Malady in that scene, for a brief second, re-experienced what she'd remembered from being touched, from from that event. From She, she re-experienced God, that ineffable thing that she couldn't articulate in her little, in her broken poetry speech. I think it kind of that revealed to me that all of the touched are these interconnected beings and there's this idea of togetherness and this very spiritual idea of oneness, this light holding them all together. And for me, Malady's crime in that scene was trying to take individual ownership of that feeling by kidnapping Mary Brighton. I think she refers to her as the angel. She 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 kind of makes a lot of uh, theocratic references in that speech she gives on the stage. One of which being that she she experienced God, and everybody in the audience turned their back on him. And and the first scene that we see when she appears is her killing the devil. So it seems that's a very hero thing to do. So I think I think there there's a there's a hero like a nucleus or a kernel of a hero hidden inside of her that I'm very excited to see play out. 
yeah, I think that goes with the like what I was saying earlier. We don't know what she <laughs> what she's going through, having seen what everybody else has forgotten. They saw, you know, we don't know that's affected her. And yeah, like you say, she comes up. I've killed the devil. I thought you'd be happy. You know, who's to say she? You know, if she thinks she's doing what's right, that's all she knows what to do. Um, I really like how Amelia's ability to glimpse the future is shown because she has no real control over it and that's really interesting because it's a super powerful ability to see the future it's a very dangerous thing because it's like do you try to change it but the way it's like an anxiety triggered thing and she does the little the little hand uh, exercise to try and keep herself but the first time we see her before we know what her power is and uh, in the house when they're getting Myrtle and you just suddenly she's on the floor and she's looking at these children and you're thinking, what's happening? Is this, you know, you're not quite sure. And then obviously in the fight scene, she's there. You're like, oh yeah, she glimpsed that she fell into the future. But for her, it's like a whole body experience. She's not just seeing it. Like a lot of other people with a future seeing ability, you know, have a vision or whatever. She's literally, it's a whole body experience. She has pulled, you know, against her will essentially into the future and fully experiences that. And a lot of the time it's pain, you know, it's going to be her in a fight, whatever. And then she knows she's got to experience that again (laughs) at some point. The fact that her little glimpses of the future are confusing make it all the more exciting for me. Because there's no guarantee, like, if she knew exactly what was going to happen contextually, that might become a little, uh, I don't know, uh, boring? Uh, Maybe that's not the right word, but... If she knew exactly what would happen, then she would be on a script, right? And she would be saying specific things and making specific physical movements so that the the outcome would be successful for her and for her agenda. But it feels to me like the, the fact that these these are little snippets of almost interpretive, like how, what's going to happen, what does this mean type of thing, that leaves an element of kind of surprise even though she can see the future. There's an element of, oh my god, what's going to happen? Which doesn't usually happen with people who can see into the future. So I enjoy that part. I think going off of that scene as well, because um, you said about Myrtle, I mean, that is an incredible job for an actress to speak all of those languages that is nothing but English, uh, sorry, everything else but English. I, I think that's that was a that's something to definitely to be commended by. It was Viola, wasn't it? Viola, Viola Pretigen. And again, it's quite a, a great comedic ability to have, especially for the show. It just adds that, wait, what moment? <laughs> <laughs> and it feels very Firefly Joss Whedon to me. Yes. Because yeah. he, yes. he likes to, I don't know about him personally, but in general, that entire, like, the sensibility is to explore with language outside of just English. It likes to incorporate kind of international language, which is the next step in like elite writing. So I, I, I kind love, of noticed that, yeah. Um same as Firefly. There's no um there's no subtitles. You don't know you you're exactly where they are. You don't know what she's saying. Which is great because it puts you exactly where they are. I love that because you know, these people from Victoria London no, nothing but Victoria London. She's speaking in tongues, you know. <laughs> we don't understand it, therefore she must be speaking in tongues. 
it's that uh, fear of the unknown, which is, you know, I guess the whole theme of the show and life itself. Just uh, people don't know it, therefore they're going to be scared of it and or try to kill it. And people don't like the afflicted. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, uh, I think now would be a good time to talk about the score, the music. Do you have any thoughts about that? See, I love listening to film scores, and I'm a musician. I feel like whilst I enjoyed the music in this show, it didn't um, it didn't pull me away from it, but it also didn't necessarily attract me at times. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't. It didn't stand out enough for me to be like wow, that's a great score, I must go and listen to it. But at the same time, I really like the themes that run through. I think it's very well written. I like the song, is very interesting. You know, she could have sung in all various ways. I like how they chose the sound of that. Yeah, Sean, what did you think? Uh, I'm actually pretty similar to you. Um, uh, I There's nothing to me that, that majorly stood out. And... I find myself at times trying to think of the theme and some of several themes in it, and I, I find myself actually at, at a bit of a loss. Um, apart from, again, that opera scene where she sings, that's, that actually is stuck in my mind. But, I mean, I'm, I'm f- familiar with Marcus Chan's work. Um, Once Upon a Time, that theme, I, I love, uh, and it's always in my head. But yeah, for, at, the, at the moment, this particular theme is it's just not quite there for me yet. I was just going to clarify with like, I think it's really good. Um, it sets the scene uh, every time they, you know, whether it's a fight scene or they're just going through Victoria and London. I think it's, yeah, it's perfectly good and interesting. So I enjoy it and I know that it will probably continue and be great throughout the season. But I don't, I don't know, maybe I should just sit, I think I should just sit and listen to it aside from the show, yeah. Uh, to see if it grabs me more um, on its own. I think that's that's definitely something that I want to do. I guess it must be doing the right job because you're not not watching it and going, oh, that doesn't work with that scene. So it must be actually, yeah, working well. It's just, yeah, nothing that's too outstanding as of yet. I'm glad both of you guys qualified that because I was about to jokingly agree with you like nails on a chalkboard. I was going to say I hated that, <laughs> but no, I I I feel I feel the opposite and it's I know it's it's kind of sounding like I love every inch of this show. Uh, <laughs> I, I I promise it's not because my my standards are, are are on the floor, but I think for me at least it felt to me like the score was sweeping when it needed to be. It was upbeat when it needed to be. It was beautifully melancholy also when it needed to be. And like in that in the very end when all of it was coming together and the event was happening and the the magic was being dispersed and all of that, that really musically got to me. And I, I feel like um like like Sean mentioned that it doesn't necessarily like the good thing about a score is it shouldn't be noticeable in the quiet moments or in the kind of the normal generic moments it should just be something accompanying what's happening and if you notice that 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 might be actually a fault but when i did notice it 
it it felt significant to me and it it feels like a a score that I might be able to work to or study to or something like that and at <laughs> some point in the working and studying I just uh, maybe I I feel like tears rolling down my cheeks while I'm mopping a kitchen you know like it, it feels like it it's moving in the right moments for me at least yeah I really enjoyed it yeah I think it was um I think it's a great score for the show I think that it's you know it nails it I just don't know if I would um if I would sit and listen to it but then I'd say like that like a show like Firefly I love the music when I watch the show I actually have the scores but I don't think I've ever listened to one like it's not one that it's not one of my like go-to movie or tv score soundtracks but um it's you know it is great <laughs> yeah the main theme bumps though take my love take my land i saw yeah. oh the main theme of course yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, jane yeah. jamestown jamestown of course classic I, I think most actually themes from joss whedon shows they tend to stick with you but yes that's i definitely i definitely want to listen <laughs> listen to this again just to hope that it doesn't change that Okay, uh, I think I think we're kind of maybe winding down. I still have a, a a million things to say, but do you guys have any do you guys have any final thoughts? I mean, overall, like I said, I really liked the episode. I think it gave us everything that we needed. It was perfectly paced for me. Um, I find a lot of the shows we've watched lately, we found quite like uh, you mentioned, One Division. I found the first three or four episodes at least to be quite slow and it was nice to just be thrown into a tv show given like bombarded with all this information and characters but at the same time not feel overwhelmed by it so the, the pacing and the way it was written and filmed was just perfect for me for the first episode yeah great great pilot yeah I, i've got to agree i also think it was great i too am quite so we, we've shows because I find shows quite predictable, I've got kind of the same mindset as as the writers that, that tend to write them. Because this had that unpredictable nature, I found myself more dug into the show than I think any show that I've watched in the last three or four years. So for, for me, it, it was uh, an amazing experience uh, to just watch a first pilot that I was hooked by instantly. I wanted to mention, and I think maybe we we haven't talked about this yet, but the opening montage, the opening montage we see with all the new characters kind of living their lives like it's a normal Monday, I think it was mentioned. I wanted to mention, and a lot of these are kind of, I have a bunch of scattered thoughts that I wanted to just shoehorn into my final thoughts that... All of them, and this is a subtlety, but all of them in that montage are outside in the daylight, except our main protagonist, Amalia, who's in these narrow, dark alleyways. And that stood out to me in terms of an introduction to Amalia. Just that visual contrast, I felt like was enough to tell us that she's not just in a physically dark place, she's in a psychologically dark place, too. I, in fact, like the, the very first shot we see in the entire show, for that matter, is just a shot of a staircase and Amalia's descending it into the darkness below. And if we've learned anything about staircases from the Joker movie, it's that a character descending one isn't a good sign. So <laughs> I think 
I think the show explicitly proves that to us later on with her suicide attempt, obviously. But I wanted to throw in there that I loved the opening montage. And then what did you guys think of the, I guess, the uh, malady remembering, remembering the event? What did you guys think of that? Straight away, I was like, well, that explains a lot. (laughs) right because you see everybody else just go back to their lives you're like oh okay no one remembers it because when when they show it like I said at the start I was shocked that they did this reveal or at least a partial reveal that it's something out of this world something is or like you said spiritual something very very strange that's come over London and you know changed people essentially we don't know why, we don't know where it's from, we don't know what it is. And now you know that Malady saw it and remembers, so she's got all those same questions that are running through our mind, but she's already coming out of um, a mental asylum. And so we know that she's got, um, you know, problems with her mental stability maybe, or she's, you know, back then people were thrown into these places for all kinds of reasons, you know, we don't know what her backstory is and what she's been through, and now this has happened to her. It's uh, it's very, you know, I just can't wait to find out more about her. Sean? Definitely. Well, yeah, no, it's exactly the same, really. Um, and going off of, of what Laura said about that basically Melody's in the same place that we are with all these questions, it kind of actually gives you that, little bit of a, a really good connection to her because of of the fact that yeah we're, we're in the same place and it, it yeah it just opens up such a can of worms really doesn't it and so many questions and that's why i want to watch the next episode <laughs> i want to also i haven't even seen past episode one but in terms of like the question i f- i feel like maybe i don't have the right answer but just interpretively i kind of answered that on my own where I, f- I feel like that that kind of that act of God or that moment of divinity that only the crazy person remembers. Like everybody yeah. else snaps back into eating bagels and uh, I get walking to the supermarket or whatever they're doing. <laughs> but malady remembers. And I, I, I love I love this because it feels like a commentary on the real insanity of sane people. Like, that's us. We are the sane people. (laughs) We are conditioned to assimilate to the status quo, to be sane, to be normal, (laughs) according to the standardized definition of normal, to prioritize our economic roles in a capitalistic society, and to disregard the sacred, the beautiful, the transcendent. We're, We're kind of almost trained to not see what's in front of our own eyes and i feel like the fact that malady saw it she's almost like an inspirational figure in that sense for me like i i I loved the fact that she remembered it and i want to see her i want to see her redeemed or actualized in some kind of way i want to see her accomplish something meaningful outside of her obvious mental illness. I want to see her maybe transcend that. Maybe that's just me. No, I think I think people are going to definitely agree with you, 
for me, it's kind of like you've seen her jump into this show and you could just go, oh, she's a crazy person, she's the villain. But then you see this at the end and now they're, talk- they're telling us the whole time how the afflicted, the touched are treated and how as a whole they're alone, you know. as a- They're a group but they're alone and if you have... Um, if you are one of the touched, then it's kind of, you know, what do you do and you feel scared for yourself? But they're not alone because there's many of them. Malady is really alone because she's not just one of the touched, but she's the only one that remembers. So she's not just got this affliction, but she's the only one that remembers that it what actually happened for them to gain it. And that's, you know... <laughs> Just makes her a really, really interesting character. Yeah. She's arguably the most intriguing character, that's for sure. So I have uh, I have a couple more questions. So for me, like, what did you guys think of the... We, haven't, we had a beginning montage. What did you guys think of the end montage, where it's kind of revealed how the event happened and what the effect it had on the people? Uh, Amalia's suicide event attempt... All of that kind of stuff. What did you guys think of that scene? The little, the little specks of light. I really and how they just fell on. It looked great. It brought everything together, but at the same time opened up even more questions. I think again for a first episode, it, it, it where it kind of does show you that it's just so unexpected. I wanted to mention, and again, this is another subtlety, but the scene with the little girl fainting. And I think, Laura, you mentioned it might be Lord Messian's granddaughter. Maybe it's his niece. Maybe it's his uh, daughter. Maybe it's his cousin. I, uh, I, I'm not sure. Maybe, probably not a cousin. But the the scene with the little girl fainting immediately followed by the scene of Amalia True awakening from having c- tried to commit suicide. It feels to me that in the context of it being a, a just as God or any amazing force that has creative power, it also has a kind of a destructive power. Like, we see the little girl fainting because she's presumably destroyed by the same power that created the wonderful abilities in all these other people. So here, it takes the, the little girl's life and their it gives renewed life and purpose to Amalia. It's it's kind of, it's a very, to me at least, it was a very beautiful depiction of the duality of all things. How good and, how good and bad have the same energy behind them are produced by the same power. Because it, it does all this, you know. And I think ultimately, it feels to me like a catalyst for change. Like it's the universe trying to create change within itself for some for some designed reason yeah no i really liked that because you're just thinking yeah everyone's been given a power and then you see what's happened to her and you're like oh i mean i'm assuming that she's dead and that gives another side to masson because it's like not only does he hate that the world is changing and he's in a position where he doesn't want that to happen um, you know, job-wise and, like, class-wise, but um, 
he's presumably lost someone very important to him through this um, event as well. So he's got this like deep hatred, presumably, for these people because they've all been given a gift. You know, that's what they 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 say. It's a gift, and in his eyes, well, why wasn't his daughter or family member given a gift? Why was they had yeah they had something taken away? And it is very much like religion, you know. Often gets people questioning, you know, if there's this Almighty God, why why does bad stuff happen? Yeah, very true. And then again, like trigger warning part two, but diving a little more deeply, pun not intended, into <laughs> Amalia's suicide attempt. Yeah, it's really brave to kind of just straight away give us this very, very dark introduction to a character. A character who you now see especially running around, doing her utmost, looking after all these other people. Is that a way for her to not look at herself? You know, putting everybody else first because, yeah, does she want to look at her own life? Um, Is that also while she's been given... We were saying about people getting um, powers that reflect who they are. Is that why she's had a power to glimpse the future? You know, for someone who wanted to end their life, is it a good thing for her to be able to see glimpses of the future? I, I suppose it's it's that kind of um, where she's been given that second chance as well. She's now where she's now doing this whole orphanage running around. It's almost as if she's trying to make amends for trying to kill herself the first time by trying to do good and help others. Sean, I want I want to re I want to rephrase the second chance as a rebirth because yes. for me, like when I when I watched that scene. Just in terms of mythic symbolism, it looks to me like Amalia's suicide attempt on that night was a kind of a death and a rebirth because she leapt she leapt into the belly of the whale to destroy herself, presumably because the pain of widowhood made life not worth living. And her reemergence from that amniotic pool is a, is a kind of a rebirth of something entirely new. Like as someone with a new ability, a new responsibility, a new purpose to subsume herself in service to. And the grief of widowhood doesn't go away. But now she she at least has something to fight for. And I love that in the very end, when we see her hit her lowest in this episode when she's beaten and drunk and getting into fights, the show shows us, it cuts to her. I mean, it shows us the whole sequence of the event, the the touched event, the, the act of God. But then it shows us at the very end, it shows us Amalia climbing back up from her low point of the suicide attempt. And for me, the message was, if she can climb back from if if she can climb back from the lowest of lowest points you can possibly reach which is self-destruction and and suicide she can damn sure climb back from the defeat of this episode that felt yeah. like even though we went all the way down now we're going back up i loved that part and it uh, also proves the relationship that she has with penance because penance is there 
straight away to help her build herself back up. You know, she has this family now, essentially. You know, this huge, very unique family. I think the dialogue, the they won't, the the touch won't be, the touch will be safe. And then Amalia responds, they they won't be safe. And maybe I'm I'm paraphrasing. And then uh, Penance responds, well, at least they'll be less lonely, and that's a start. And I, I feel like that says so much in in so little words. And, you know, just talking about the dialogue right before that, where Amalia was trying to... She was explaining why she got into the fight and why she was at this low. I think uh, Penance responds, I know, troublesome... Sorry, trouble makes you troublesome. But there's <laughs> nothing like good fortune... Something about that almost feels to me, and I don't know if maybe this is the elephant in the room with Joss Whedon, but it feels to me like that's almost a coded message from addressing kind of the entire situation that's going on right now (laughs) of how do we deal with the fact that, you know, the, the, the creator of these... Of of this work that at least personally I adore, but also you know there's these external realities where this person is maybe you know very flawed, has done some hurt some people. Uh, it, it's it's an internal struggle at least for me as a viewer. How do we deal with this? Uh, do you guys have any thoughts on that, or do you do you, I don't know if you guys have formulated anything uh yeah i mean i find it we're like really huge fans right yeah obviously since like childhood and you know i don't i haven't looked extensively into what's been going on and not a lot has actually been said like fact wise you know from my personal experience having worked on that scene and on this show it was fantastic the atmosphere with the crew um, I was very lucky enough to actually be one-on-one directed by Joss and it was amazing. He was the most, uh, he was like super soft-spoken, really calm, just had control of everything, knew what was happening. All the crew and the cast seemed to be enjoying, knowing what was happening. It was like the best run production I've ever been on in like seven years. So for me, as a fan, and having worked on this show, now my mind's kind of like, oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> I know for me, like I had the I had the pleasure of of meeting Joss Whedon at a at a concert in Austin, Texas. Oh wow! Um, <laughs> and he was kind enough to shake my hand like three separate <laughs> times in the same interaction. Uh, and I told him how many times I saw Firefly. I told him like I saw Firefly <laughs> twelve times. So that that was I, I mean he was he was nice to me at least. Yeah. So as far as my own experience, I can say that. But you know, I, it's it's a, it's very complicated. Obviously, there's a lot of controversy going on, and you know, I I think it would be a disservice not to at least address that a little bit. And the fact that if there are if all of these allegations and people coming at him and I think 
what what you put out into the world will come back to you so whatever happened is coming back to him and is obviously going to impact this show and i haven't seen second third or fourth episode i saw a glimpse of some other reviews that were coming out and they weren't all positive which is incredible to me because when i take this show in a vacuum at least in the first episode it's just perfect it's 10 out of 10 and I don't say that lightly so if the second episode is a drop in quality I don't know but to me I mean it's at least something to you know keep an eye on I I wonder how this show is going to move forward Mm. yeah I'm I'm yeah now I'm I've loved the first few episodes so much I'm it's that worry isn't it that now just a step aside Will it be the same show? Because even with the same characters, the same, you know, storyline, if, if they know where the story is going for the next however many seasons, which they might um, already know and have planned, it's that, those little, like we said, those little Whedonisms that happen, you know, in the dialogue. You know when you, like, you, you could have watched that show not knowing it was a Joss Whedon show. And if you're a fan, you, you'd sit there and go, that's so Whedon. <laughs> And yeah. then you'd look it up and go, oh, it is Whedon. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's just, though, and yeah, I mean, we I just got Sean to watch Dollhouse for the first oh, time. Oh, really? Yes. Dollhouse. He hadn't watched it. So we just watched Dollhouse before this come out. Um, it was perfect timing, actually. Mm. But I, I'd watched it. I watched it when it came out, and then I've got the DVDs and that, so I watched it quite a lot. But yeah, it was Sean's first time, and really liked it. <laughs> but yeah, it's just those... You know when you're watching a weed in the show, and mm, um, definitely. you know even if you had the same writers and the same everything, those little distinct. bits of direction, yeah, it's so distinct. So will it be? It won't have the same heart, I don't think. Which is is a complete shame, really, because yeah, I, I I absolutely love love everything Whedon, and uh, I mean I I stay out of all of the news stuff until I know it's all included and in all the facts are 100% there so um, I won't really I, I never have any real views um, however I am completely jealous that both of you have had some sort of encounter with Joss Whedon <laughs> I haven't um, as of yet but you never know um, <laughs> but yeah um, okay I'll hook you up your next birthday <laughs> party he'll come over yeah <laughs> that'd be, that'd be well, we've got a treat for you Sean he's on the yeah. show next week <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> well, any any close any closing thoughts for you guys? Um, I think just yeah, I was really um blown away with it. I think as we are all such Whedon fans, it's it's easy to get your hopes up, and I think I tried to I tried to really not get try not to get too excited in case I was let down, which then meant that when I did watch it. I was really blown away because, you know, if you set your expectations here... You, you oh, know, yeah. And it was just way up here. If I can interrupt you for just a second, like, when I was watching the first the pilot episode, I felt like I was watching it in the middle of a tornado. I was so blown away. Honestly. <laughs> like, I'm not even biased. I'm just saying. I was That's blown away. That's what I was going to yeah. say. Um, people will say, oh, you're biased. You like all things Whedon. You're just, you're just going to like it. It's like, no, no, I can find fault, you know. Dollhouse, mm. I love the the show and the arc, but there are episodes that are slow and not really much happens, and it's kind of like this sometimes. Um, uh, Firefly, not so much. Firefly's pretty solid as a TV show from start to finish. 
you know, I mean, I mean, there's so much of Buffy and Angel to go through that it's, <laughs> it there's there's a lot there. But um, yeah, this I don't know. I think this is definitely on another level for people to enjoy that aren't just Whedon fans. Um, it's kind of show I'm like, yeah, you know, everyone's gonna love this. Everyone's mum and dad is gonna be able to watch this. It's it. This is like the potential of the next hit show. Just on TV everywhere, not just like, oh, it's the next big HBO show. This is like, I feel like everyone will watch and enjoy this. I don't want to say anything now because that was like perfect, what you said. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you uh, Laura, Laura can vouch for me when I say I'm very critical about the things I watch. He's really harsh, yeah. Um, I am very harsh. <laughs> and considering, yeah, on a first watch watching this, I, I literally had nothing negative really to say that's that's something quite impressive yeah i i mirror you totally like i i watch things very in a very dissective way like i i watch tv shows with a scalpel and for me <laughs> i didn't perform any surgery it just it's perfect the way it is for me and maybe the second episode will be a drop-off maybe it'll maybe it'll be an elevation i'm not sure yet but um you know i We'll see about that. We'll see the next one. I guess. Unless you guys have anything else to say. I think that's uh, well and truly dissected. I think that was that was good. <laughs> um, so the HBO has launched the official Nevers podcast for the Nevers. It's called The Touch Base, The Nevers. It's hosted by Rooster Teeth's Barbara Dunkelman and Jessica Vasami. Uh, they'll have interviews with guests from the show, speculate about what will happen next and more. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get podcasts. So check them out. But obviously don't forget about us. <laughs> <laughs> and wrapping up, so just a little podcast plug. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music Podcast, YouTube. We're everywhere. We're omniscient. Omniscient. And for more Nevers-related content, you can visit the web at hbothenevers.com, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at hbothenevers, and at hbothenevers-podcast, and at hbothenevers-podcast, without an A, because that handle wasn't available apparently on Twitter. Comments and questions, you can email to theneverspodcast at gmail.com. I would like to thank... Laura and Sean for joining us and I would like to invite them to push to go ahead and uh, uh, plug their own social medias. Yeah, I mean if you would like to follow me and my many geeky uh, endeavours and also being an extra like I was on this show, you can follow my Instagram which is LauraJP1721 uh, I don't do a lot of social media but I do have a Instagram account for my um, videography company so if you'd like to follow x motion studios that would be great and i'm chirag and you can find me uh on twitter at mayan mailman so i have no association to the mayan people but i was very young when i came up with that handle and i don't have the heart to change it it's just alliterative so you can find me there if you want to or if you don't want to i don't tweet anything important you can find me on instagram at chirag m90 and until next time this has been the Nevers Podcast. Thank, Thank you. you very much.
This episode of the Nevers Podcast was written, produced, and edited by Matthew Yamanashi at Culture Inject Studios. The intro and outro music was produced by Jilirme Morais. We are more than just a podcast. We're a fan community. You can keep up to date on The Nevers and chat with other fans by visiting hbothenevers.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search HBO The Nevers, all one word, and click that follow button. The Nevers podcast is not endorsed by Mutant Enemy, Warner Media Entertainment, or any of its subsidiaries, including Home Box Office, HBO, and is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. The Nevers and all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective copyright holders. They're here. They're here.